Welcome to Trust Issues, a podcast by Kepler Trust Intelligence. Please be aware that there can be a time lag when we release podcasts, meaning time-sensitive information may no longer be accurate at the time of publication. Also note that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decide to sell your investments. It's strongly recommended that if you are a private investor, independent financial advice should be taken before making any investment or financial decision. Finally, Kepler Partners LLP has a relationship with the company covered in this podcast, which may impair its objectivity. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Trust Issues. Today, I'm joined by Pruxa Yam Thong Thong, who is a manager on the Asia Dragon Trust. So, Pruxa, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, maybe to, just to get started, for someone that is not familiar with the trust, can you talk about what you do, what you invest in, what the trust objectives are, and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, sure. Thank you, David, for inviting us on, on the show. So, Asia Dragon Trust is one of the um, oldest investment trusts focusing on Asia and probably one of the large one of the largest as well. And um, our ultimate objective is to really invest in world-class leading um, Asian companies that give exposure to Asia. Uh, that's the objective of the trust. There's three L for you to remember. The first L is leading. So obviously we look for good quality uh, companies with leading position in the industry that will able to give you the sustainable growth. The second L is long-term, so we really invest for the long-term and take a longer-term horizon. And this is really allow us to capture the longer-term structural growth in Asia, which we think is very attractive. And the third is the third L is local. Uh, in this case, it's really using um, our local knowledge with the team based in Asia. So I myself sit in Singapore, um, but you probably can tell from my name that I'm Thai by nationality. And we have a local team um, across key countries within Asia and has been the case for the last um, 30 years investing in Asia. Okay, great. That's a good way to start. So one of the themes that I see in your portfolio, but also just sort of across across this uh, sector, is um, there's there's quite a lot of people talking about the rise of the Asian consumer. So essentially, if you look at somewhere like India, it might be that people are spending more on, on um, you know, brand name discretionary goods. Um, so, so could you talk about that trend, what what its effects are, um, and then do do you see it being more pronounced in certain regions? So maybe um, you know the opportunity is different in India versus China, for example. Yeah, I would say um, this is a long term structural growth of Asia, and I think um, it's it's no secret that Asia will be one of the largest pool of consumers um, in many years to come. And you would see this very supportive um, rise of demographic, rise of middle class, increasing wealth, and all of that will be good for consumption as well as commu- uh, premiumization of consumption. Um, I would say the opportunity sets are quite different um, in different countries. Um, and this is really driven by, I think, the pace of consumption upgrade. So we see plenty of opportunities in India, for example, which has now surpassed China to become the largest place with the largest population in the world and here you have very young consumers um, that are growing in wealth pretty rapidly and you should think about the consumer um, opportunity in India as a big pyramid where you are essentially trying to migrate people from the bottom of the pyramid, um, get them to 
you know, used at, across in terms of the penetration of the categories of very simple things like soap, uh, dishwashers, for example, um, all the way to the top of the pyramid, which uh, could be things like automobiles or, or even things like uh, skincare, shampoo. So, so really in India, um, I think the consumption upgrade is coming from a low base, but really huge multi-decade type opportunity there. Then in China, it's really about uh, focusing on the middle class um, in terms of premiumization of consumption. Um, as you know, um, Chinese consumers, if you have been to um, any duty-free shops as well, um, they are one of the largest spenders. And we do see uh, Chinese consumers um, being one of the drivers of premiumization of consumption. So here you can um, see the opportunities in very simple businesses like, for example, um, upgrade in the type of beer that you drink um, in China or you talk about um, people buying more cosmetics in China, for example, as well. Those are some of the types of companies that we own. And, and I think um, that's also a very longer term driver. Then you have Indonesia, which is also going to be a large and populous country. And here, um, again, um, the opportunities here, um, we also see this um, within the portfolio from the automobile perspective. But also, I think um, you do have a proxy on the banking sector to be playing uh, the economic growth here. So really, I think the consumer um, opportunity is large and we do do like this theme for the long term. Yeah, so I'm curious if you have any concerns about this particular theme when it comes to China. So if you if you look at, say, debt relative to income in China, it's, it's very high. A lot of people have basically put their savings into the property market, which doesn't seem to be doing particularly well at the moment. Um, then, you know, another factor there is that people seem to, it's kind of like Japan and that people seem to save a lot and not particularly like spend. Um, but then, you know, China doesn't, as far as I'm aware, doesn't have a particularly strong social safety net. So you have, you know, less, you have more of an incentive basically to, to save your money than go out and spend it. Um, and then if you look at this business side, you know, there's, there's a I suppose you could say that it's it's China perhaps ironically is seems often more competitive than than American firms right so if you look at say Amazon in the US is completely predominant uh in China you have like five different e-commerce sites that are all highly competitive so you know whether that's like JD Pindio Duo um and then ByteDance which owns TikTok is is making a lot of headway there as well um, I don't know if those companies would necessarily be catering to the sort of demand you're talking about, but I think it's it's maybe illustrative of of, of trends you might see elsewhere. Um, so so yeah, so I suppose do you have any fears that that story might not actually sort of emerge in the way that a lot of people are, are hoping it might? I think we've got to be selective um, about where to play in China, and and that's why uh, we talked about you know in the question earlier about how. The focus of China is really about premiumization of consumption and you focus on, on the middle class and, and also the upper middle class where I think in terms of the ability to spend um, is still pretty high. Um, one of the big trades this year is China reopening and I think um, frankly that hasn't really come through um, at this moment due to a couple of reasons and we do think that that is a question of really weak confidence, uh, weak consumer confidence um, that will, will need to change. And one of the reasons for the weaker consumer confidence is really about um, the uncertainty of policies, where if you look towards the end of last year, or look back at towards the end of last year, you'll notice that the sudden pivot in terms of zero COVID policy have caused a lot of people by surprise. 
and with that, I think people were not too confident about the you know potential of policy certainty going forward. And then earlier on in the year, like most countries, you do have a second wave um, coming through in China as well. And people were not sure whether they will go back um, to what it was um, during the case of last year. But I think um, what we have seen so far is that it seems that uh, a re-lockdown is not a scenario. Um, and as a result, um, I think that with time should give people more confidence about uh, policy certainty. Um, the other very important factor, as you have pointed out, is that um, there is a large proportion of wealth being tied in the property sector. And last year, again, property sector has gone through a very tough time um, where the government is cognizant of the large leverage within the sector, which, you know, if left untouched, would lead to um, systematic risks down the road, and that will be destabilizing for the overall economy of China. And as a result, they have really uh, made an effort to bring down the leverage but the consequence of that is that um, we see a downturn in, in property. And um, with that, I think people were not too confident that the government would be uh, standing behind to stabilize the property. Um, and we are starting to see more of stabilizing policies towards the end of last year as well, more of this year. So I think um, the confidence that property will stabilize this year is also very important to consumer confidence. So I think those we should start to see um, a gradual recovery of consumer confidence towards uh, the second half of this year or perhaps uh, later on in the second half of the year. And, and that would be good for shorter term uh, reopening trade that, that I think many, including us, have been hoping to come through. But I think if you look at the long, longer term picture, um, that remains unchanged. Um, we do think that the price of the pie is really large. And I think um, the premiumization of consumption as well as, you know, um, people just demanding better services and better goods as wealth increases, um, that long-term structural trend um, is unlikely to change in tightener and still remains very much intact. So that's on the consumer front. Um, on the business front, you are right that um, China is a competitive market. And um, in, in that case, the other important thing to remember is that China is also a very large consumer market. So in a sense, we do have multiple players um, focusing on on their niches in order to serve their consumers. So you have, um, for example, uh, JD.com, which is very good with, um, which started their business from, from the electronics category and then try to expand it, try to expand more um, into other categories. And they really um, differentiate by having a high quality service as well as you know very strong quality type of product in terms of their product mix. And then you have Alibaba Taobao, which is more of a market e-commerce space um, where you can go in to find the variety of products that you want. Um, and they are using uh, more artificial intelligence as well to match more consumers as well as with buyers, uh, as well as with sellers, sorry. And then you, you have um, things like ByteDance, like you say, that basically uses live streaming to do a promotion on a certain type of, of product as well. So I would say um, there are, it is a competitive market, but people do have a different carve out in terms of the way that they try to serve um, the various needs of the consumer market, which in China um, is growing over the long run. So again, um, in such a market, then it's important to select where to play. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, okay, so mo moving on to another theme in the portfolio, that's uh, which is uh, infrastructure. Um, 
I mean, again, I, I wonder here, is there a particular a particular region where you think that there's more of an opportunity here? Like, I mean, off, off the top of my head, I think Vietnam seems to be quite an attractive play there just because if you look at the like the level of urbanization is actually still quite low but i you know that's just off the top of my head could be could be uh wrong i mean what what are the what are the regions that you think are look attractive here and how do they vary in terms of what you can actually invest in yeah so infrastructure play into one of the key themes that we have uh within the portfolio so just now consumption we we put it under aspiration which is one of the key long-term structural themes Infrastructure here, we put it under what you call Building Asia. Um, and this is the longer term uh, structural theme that we see as well. And in here, I would say that um, it is India that stands out. Um, it's no secret that you know India needs a lot of roads and infrastructure. Um, it also has very low housing penetration. So for us, this is a very much a penetration story in India. And I think what's, what's really important over the last... Um, few years is that we are also starting to see uh, what you call an inflection point in India, where um, you must have heard about the made in India policy that have been, I think, 10 years in the making. But I think um, what has really changed over the last few years is the acceleration of supply chain that is coming out of China um, by companies um, that are looking to do this to increase the resilience of the supply chain, but also to reduce the geopolitical risk that the business is facing. And as a result, uh, we do think that Made in India is taking off pretty nicely. And over the last few years, um, the Indian government has really uh, put their mind to improving the access to roads, infrastructure. Um, I mean, one of our team has just come back from India last week. And one statistic I can, show, I can share with you that I thought is pretty interesting is that um, India has built more roads um, over the last 10 years than it has done so in the last 30 years. So you can really see, you know, things are accelerating. And if Made in India were to have um, the success that um, people hope that it will have in the future, uh, logistic costs needs to come down and that would need, mean you need more roads, you need more logistic park, you need more infrastructure. And one of the best ways for us to play this, which is pretty straightforward, is cement companies in India um, that has a good consolidated uh, type of market share, which is good for margins as well. Um, the other angle is really the housing side of infrastructure as well. Um, we classify this under Building Asia. And um, here we have within um, the portfolio um, uh, housing mortgage institution company. And, and really, uh, it's really about uh, funding the housing shortages that we see in India. And we are in a good cycle in India at the moment, um, given uh, improving affordability as well. So I think um, it's really the one thing that we really quite like. Yeah, so so on on that point, I think one pe one thing people might be concerned about here is uh, sort of governance. So um, I think if you if you look at, I mean, you know, bad governance can can happen anywhere. But I think that if you look at say India, I remember I think a couple of weeks ago you saw this bridge collapse, right? And there's there's basically potential for some, uh, let's say. I don't know what the right word, maybe moral hazard or something like that, where essentially you have some corruption or whatever it might be between, you know, governments giving contracts to, to particular companies. Um, so I just wonder if that is a, of, of, you know, I'm sure that's that's important whenever you're making an investment, but maybe it's of like sort of heightened importance in, in this particular area, or is that not the case? Yeah, it's really true. And I think um, in any emerging countries where, 
um, where the environment is is risky and and the market is still not mature, uh, governance risk is going to be high. Um, and this is the same case for India. So I think that's why you really need to pay attention to quality and have ESG being integrated as part of your investment analysis. So I think um, our focus on on quality within places like India or China is is really important there. Um, and and again, you know, talk to going back to my cement example there. Um, I think that's one of the relatively more straightforward to play the infrastructure story. Um, given that um, it is perhaps a less colorful sector than than other sectors that will be more susceptible to to the issues that you have mentioned about. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't touch the other sector at all. It's just that you probably need a higher governance hurdle and you need uh, a, a lot more work in order to get comfortable around there. Yeah, no, sure. So uh, another thing uh, that you touched on in, in your prior answer was but was basically companies moving away from, from China. So I think people are calling this friendshoring or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think partly this seems to be uh, you know, political phenomenon. So people are, are afraid of what might happen between the US and China and don't necessarily want to have their manufacturing there. And then, you know, probably another factor is it's, it's an sort of economic one where China is actually now kind of per capita, it's quite a wealthy place. So it's, it's become much more expensive uh, to, to make things there. Uh, at least, you know, that's sort of the theory. I'm just wondering if you see that actually happening in practice. Um, and what sort of opportunities that has, has created for you, if at all, if any? Yeah, I mean, um, this is a, a term that we will we will use, we will call it China plus one, China plus two story. Um, and I think that's painted the, the picture pretty clearly that, you know, China is not out of the supply chain and China uh, is very integrated and will continue to be a large part of the global supply chain. Um, it's just that, because of you know the supply chain shortage that we have during COVID, um, as well as increasing need for resilience and geopolitical uh, diversification needs, um, you do have what you call a China plus one and China plus two. And I think you have pointed this out uh, pretty correctly that earlier on, um, people are already moving supply chain out of China. And this is really for cost reasons because, you know, China is no longer a cheap place to be producing goods like in the past, um, given higher wages, given um, aging population as well. So supply chain are already moving. But I think the key change over the last two years is that you see this pace really accelerating. And um, this is perhaps one of the key takeaways during my recent um, trip to Taiwan as well, where I spoke to more than 20 companies there um, over the course of one week. And what came through uh, very clearly is that all of them are looking very much to um, increase their capacity of capital investment elsewhere outside of China. Um, and it comes into many places like in, in ASEAN, for example, depending on what type of businesses they are looking at. And this is really because um, I think each country does have their own competitive advantage and, and the supply chain set up. So I think this is really happening. Um, and again, this would be the, a multi-year story and will drive more um, foreign investment flow into ASEAN and drive the capital cycle um, into many parts of the rest of Asia. So I think a, a very exciting long-term theme um, that will drive the structural growth here uh, versus, you know, just a cyclical recovery in the past. Yeah, no, definitely. So, uh, I mean, one one area though that I think 
uh, you see particularly us um is is kind of trying to to achieve the sort of dynamic that you described essentially moving production or or whatever whatever part of the process it is outside of away from china is in um clean energy so make, mainly instead of making batteries whatever whatever goes into a an electric vehicle but you know other things as well related to to clean tech um increasingly it seems like that's actually really difficult to do i mean i, I think there's a perception that a lot of people have which is that you know, Chinese companies are are often just kind of copycats of of Western companies, and um, if you can somehow cut them out of the supply chain, they'll just won't really be able to succeed. But if you look at if you look at one battery supply chain, it just seems like China has become so predominant in it, it would be kind of difficult to remove them. But also, a lot of the tech they have in terms of whether it's something like solar um, or, or or EV often seems either on par with or actually better than than um, you know, Western peers, um, you know, I think, I think of say the uh, like uh, electric vehicles, it seems like they're actually making cars that are more cost of, you know, cheap, basically cheaper and, and, and better in terms of charging times and things like that. Um, so do you think, do you I mean, first of all, do you think that's actually, that's actually true? Um, and secondly, um, I, I know you, you kind of investing in this, in this area. Um, can you just talk a bit about that at all and and if, if it as it pertains to china i think there's again there's some because it's such a politically sensitive area um do you have any kind of fears there Does, is that something you sort of have to be wary of when you're investing okay um so so i think the first opportunity here is really about you know investing in what you call innovative china and and i think this is the part that the perception about chinese companies and capabilities of chinese companies um has to change from the past so I think um, it's pretty true that in the past, you know, China um, or Chinese companies in many sectors, they produce uh, what you call copycats or, or widgets. Um, but I think that's no longer the case and they have really upped the game over here. Um, and we do think that innovative China um, is a very interesting uh, longer term theme for us to play. Um, this is also coming true from, you know, China having one of the larger pool of what you call um STEM graduates um, globally, and STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and, and mathematics, so all the good stuff um, in terms of, you know, really skilled graduates uh, coming out that will be supporting um, the innovative China theme. And I think the other point as well is that um, this is also one of the area where you are going to see a long-term policy support, and this is driven by the need for China to really increase their self-sufficiency here and a lot of that would be driven by you know increasing their localization as well um, and and this is also um, an effort that has been accelerated because of what's happening geopolitically for China so we do think innovative China um, is something that we really like as a theme um, to invest um, over the long term so if you were to break the innovative China theme down uh, where could be the interesting areas to invest in First, as you mentioned, um, the EV supply chain there is something that we think is really interesting. And China does have a leadership in, in technology here as well. Uh, some on par with global peers, some have exceeded global peers, and they are definitely very cost efficient. And I think that because of this, that also helps to drive um, the pace of acceleration in terms of EV penetration in China today. And as you know, um, if you drive EV penetration, you would also need um, infrastructure support. And China is really good at building that, building charging stations to help to drive EV integration. 
um, penetration there. So we do think that over here, the opportunity is good and they do have a global, globally competitive um, company. Um, although the second question that you mentioned in terms of geopolitical risk, um, I think going forward, you are also going to see, uh, I think, a dual track in terms of opportunities that come through here. Um, so basically, I think there's no question that Chinese companies are going to be very competitive in China. Um, and without you know geopolitical reasons, they should be very com competitive externally as well. But I think um, given the way that things are developing, um, perhaps growth going forward um, overseas are going to be uh, slightly more challenging um, and will be a bit more sensitive um, area for them to thread on. But we still see some progress there. So for us, for a Pan-Asian fund, there is actually a simpler way uh, to be playing the ex-China in terms of EV supply chain. And that is with um, in the supply chain in other countries like in Korea. So we do have um, strong exposure to Korea. That would be uh, one of the key partners for, for the US in terms of um, getting to build up the ex-China supply chain, um, the onshoring benefits, or friendshoring, um, as you have mentioned, and that will be uh, pretty well supported by um, the subsidies that are coming through, like the IRA or Inflation Reduction Act, that I think uh, some of these companies that already have factories onshore in China um, will be able to uh, be well positioned to benefit, and they do have uh, good technology. So I think um, you can choose. There are many opportunities for you to play this overall um, innovative theme, and here we call it the, the Green Energy Transition theme. And I think you can, you are able to uh, benefit from this through investment in both the Chinese companies um, as well as ex-China companies. Okay, so there's another another area that's um, that's say politically sen sensitive is, uh, semiconductors. It's obviously also performed very well in the past few years. So uh, I know you you reduced your exposure to the sector last year. Uh, I'm curious if you've added back at all um, and. If you're also concerned at all about sort of valuations there, so um, I don't. I mean, I haven't checked it at share price uh, today, but I, I think Nvidia was was last week at trading at a multiple that was higher. You know, a sales multiple that was higher than Cisco's was when it was at peak dot com boom. So I think there's there is definitely some, from my point of view, definitely some froth in that sector. And I just wonder if you it's something you're having to be wary of. So if you rightly pointed out, um, over the course of last year, we have reduced our semiconductor slash tech hardware exposure. And that's really because I think from the beginning of last year, we start to uh, become a bit more concerned about the peaking of the semiconductor cycle after you have seen um, the, the stocks and the sector doing um, pretty well. Um, as you saw, a pull forward of demand um, during work from home period um, that we all have experienced during COVID as well as supply chain challenges. And therefore, um, you do see, start to see you know, inventory being built up in the system as well. And uh, valuation was looking uh, pretty high. Um, and therefore, um, what happened after that is that we start to um, reduce our position there uh, a bit more significantly um, when the Ukraine and Russia situation built up because we were are getting a lot more concerned about the demand scenario. So I think fast forward uh, towards the end of the year, uh, what you have seen is that you have seen basically um, the share price of these uh, companies or this sector has come down, number one. 
Number two, you saw that in terms of earnings estimates that have also been reflecting some of the weakness um, coming through from the inventory correction cycle. And number three, we still think that the long-term prospect still looks pretty good. So uh, we have started to add back to the sector uh, from the end of last year and a bit more into um, the earlier part of this year. And if you were to look at um, the valuation um, difference, so it has done well on the back of the AI, uh, AI-driven AI rally that I think coincided with, with my trip in Taiwan as well, that I think um, everyone was, was really talking about this and people were getting really excited. But I think if you look at the way that some of the uh, Taiwanese of the Korean supply chain, um, their share price have, have um, reacted to this, they pretty much lack the rally uh, versus, say, that of the U.S. companies. But we do feel that, you know, um, if you were to think about the potential of AI and the underlying applications that are expecting to come through, uh, what that means is that you will need more infrastructure, um, more infrastructure needs to be built, more semiconductors need to be used, and therefore um, it should benefit um, the supply chain of the world within this space, and that sits within Korea and Taiwan within our portfolio. Okay, well, very interesting. Uh, maybe to, to finish off, I mean, do you have any sort of final thoughts, things that you think investors should be aware of at the moment when it comes to Asia? Yeah, we do think that Asia uh, is looking pretty interesting and, you know, we, we have a lot of increasing interest coming through in Asia um, at the moment as well. So so speaking to, to a lot of clients um, and we do think that this year, um, Asia, from a growth perspective, it does offer um, what you call a, a more sheltered level of growth um, versus, say, some of the uncertainties uh, in terms of global growth environment out there. And in terms of the macro environment, um, you do see that Asia um, has a relatively better control of inflation scenario as well as um, rates environment are also more supportive for growth. But um, valuation is looking uh, pretty attractive and uh, allocation to Asia is low because people felt, uh, people see Asia, people do see, you know, the fear of China. And I think currently the sentiment around investing in China um, is still pretty low among foreign investors. So for long-term investors, we do see this as an opportunity because I think there is a mismatch right now in terms of where fundamentals are trading um, versus, say, uh, you know, the, the sentiment that is clouding the market at the moment. So we do think that this is really a, a good time to get into Asia for long-term investors. Great. Well, that is a, a positive and upbeat note on which to finish. So Prix, Yam Thong Thong, thanks very much for joining us and hopefully we can chat again soon. Thank you very much for having us.